every year, humans are spending more and more time in front of their computer screens and online than ever before. And so the idea of like having a social life somewhere where you spend more time than, than you do not, I think makes complete sense. If I spend 16 hours or 12 hours for my computer and four hours outside of my computer, I think it's only natural that people are going to continue to form more relationships via that way. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast, Floor is Rising, with host Sabretooth, a professional NFT collector, and Kizu, a professional art critic. On this podcast, we talk deeply about the business of creating, collecting and analyzing NFTs. So, if you are a creator or a collector of NFTs, jump in. The water is warm. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Floor is Rising. With us today is uh, two pseudonymous founders, Punk8621 and Albert Wagner of Pangea Dub. Tell us, you know, what is Pangea DAO and then what is, you know, your two guys' history of how you came to found this DAO and how you sort of got into the NFT space. Good morning. Pangea DAO is a, it's a collective of investors, artists, creators, builders, people in the space that want to create cool, cool things in the metaverse that want to gain exposure to different kinds of metaverse land and that works together to Firstly, acquire land and then develop on the land and, and create revenue generating opportunities on this land. And to further that, it's not just about revenue. It's also about creating cool stuff in the metaverse that A, has a lasting value and just benefits our community. So yeah, that's Pangea Dao. It's me, Punk, and, and Albert with me that um, are on this podcast. And another big thing with Pangea Dao is that we're really focused on creating an easy way for any individual retail investor to get access to a diversified portfolio of metaverse land assets. Right now, we think there's a lot of barriers to entry for the retail, average retail investor to get into the metaverse. And Pangea's main goal is to kind of tackle those barriers and make a more equitable space. Can you tell us a bit about like your own personal backgrounds and how did you get into NFTs? And then how did you guys you know, get together to, to do this Pangea deal? I think our personal background kind of reflects the, the ethos of Pangea. So I started off in algorithmic trading. So it's like trying to make DeFi bots to, to beat Bitcoin. <laughs> and that was back in like 2017. And one day I woke up and I bought a crypto punk. <laughs> I actually, I can't remember the exact interaction, but I just remember like I went from in a really short time thinking this is really stupid to thinking, wow, this is the future. And it was like a flick in my mind. And I think a lot of people have that flick because when you don't understand it and you see the prices, you think there's, like, there's, there's no way. And then suddenly when you get it, then you see the prices again, you're like, wow, this is undervalued. Uh, so for me, that was a switch. And then like once we got into the NFTs, I feel like that's a gateway drug into the metaverse because it's like I've already had my mind challenged so many times and like had to relearn what I was doing and accept new possibilities. So then when the, when the possibilities in the metaverse come up, we were already open to it. We're already like looking, how do we get in on this? And then, so that's like kind of our openness and why our mind was like, yeah, that has to happen. But then on the other hand, I think once we realized we wanted to get into the metaverse, both financially, but also creatively, we realized that it's really hard because from the financial perspective, you need to have, a lot of money to get in. There's a high high cost of entry. 
And on top of that, there's a lot of people competing. So there's a lot of VCs, large whales, or big companies that are able to get in on pre-sales and buy a land early, which means, uh, and they have a lot of leverage and positions and, and sort of different partners, which means that you're kind of at a disadvantage financially if you're just a resale investor investing against big entities. So from a sort of personal perspective, we found that it was really hard to get in. And then from a creative perspective, you need to have these relationships and networks to be able to work with the right people. You need to be able to, to actually get land and have the right tools and the right teams working with you. So if you're going to enter the metaverse just as a resale investor or creator on your own, we think it's the favor is heavily skewed against you. And so Pangea was sort of founded out of almost the selfishness of ourselves wanting to get into the metaverse, not knowing how and saying, let's figure out a way to get into it. And then DAO just kind of naturally grew because we were like, wow, well, this is, we're not the only ones with this problem. Like there's probably a hundred thousand other people sitting with this problem. And if just a small percentage of those join us, then we actually have, we can become a big player and we have like a big chance to make an impact. Sorry, that was long. Just to do a little introduction on myself. Yeah, I'm a former Web2 founder building communities for two-sided marketplaces Class of like 2016 for crypto, but it wasn't really doing that full time until this past summer. But was did the deep dive into like uh, securities and uh, privatization when I got into crypto in 2016, and then um, got into NFTs a little bit uh, during the first Crypto Kitties wave when they were kind of clogging up the Ethereum network. I thought that was really cool, was breeding and just playing around with that. I uh, kind of took a break from NFTs for a while until I stumbled across hash masks in the beginning of last year and minted a couple of those. And since then have gone down the rabbit hole once again. Let me um, try to clarify, I guess, something uh, Punk, you said, which is that retail investors investing in metaverse land doesn't basically are faced at a disadvantage compared to you know, VCs and sort of institutional yeah. investors. Uh, can you sort of explain that a little bit more? What do you mean by sort of they're at a disadvantage? We can break it into a few things, but if we start off, I'd say when you're a big entity in this space and there's new new games or metaverse or digital worlds coming up, a lot of these digital worlds, in order to build, they need financing. And so being a big player, you often get contacted either to be in like, early rounds, seed rounds, which is totally normal. It's not, we're not against that for, for the record. It's totally normal that, you know, you need investment. But what happens then is a lot of these big players are able to invest large amounts into these games at an early stage. And then once these worlds or games pump and they become big and a lot of people buy it, often some people have a heavily amount of tokens or some often it's land or it's, it's different parts within depending on the world but what happens is within one metaverse there's one player that was able to or two or three that were able to invest very early and as a result everything within that metaverse is heavily skewed in their favor so the acquisition of land the in-game economics of how the game works and in a sense it's totally normal but retail investors must also realize that this is the case and that coming together, it does help them. And then also, like, that's just the first part. But then if we go sort of, if we go a step further, I think it's important to know that there is more, you know, 
land is only as valuable, and, and we say this all the time, really, like with all our partners, land is only as valuable as what you do with it. If you just own a piece of land, it's absolutely useless because like, what are you doing with it? <laughs> and so if you're a resale investor and you want to buy land, well, great, you can buy land and speculate on it and it might go up in value. But from an investment perspective, that's just not a good strategy. Like for a long-term investment perspective, what then happens is you cannot do anything to appreciate the value of your land. And as a result, you're just you're solely relying on the hype of, of a particular realm or world or, or the popularity of it to go up and, and you're not doing anything with it. When you compare that to what a cooperative like us can do, when, once we acquire the land, because we already have all these creators in our network that we're working with and trying to create cool shit with, because we already have these people in our network, we can actually develop something on that land, which means we can make a gallery space that people can come and show their gallery, show their work in our gallery, which creates a value for the community and gives them a chance to sell it. Or we can maybe create like an in-world game. A great example is NFT worlds and, and Skuxverse and things like that. And all the projects that are building on an NFT worlds where you own a piece of land and on that land, you can create a game. Uh, you can do that in many other rooms too. But the, the point is that we're actually able to develop things on top of that land and create utility and activate the, the, the community. And that's where the real value lies in the long term, because just holding land, it doesn't, it doesn't do anything. You know, you can own land in, I said this before as well, you can own land in Siberia right now. What, just ice, <laughs> what are you, you going to do there? You know, it's like, there's no point in owning, you can own land on the moon if you wanted, but like, what would you do there? Other than saying it's cool and the speculative price may be going up, but who knows on that? So yeah, it's all about utility and content and bridging the gap between investing in the land and getting financial exposure, but also having creativity and creating cool things on it. I'm guessing you guys don't have like a legal entity and it's purely sort of on-chain? Because a large portion of our team is US-based, Okay, we are making sure, and with the fact that we're selling a token, we're, we're taking a lot of uh, big steps to make sure that we're fully legally compliant. Incorporating as a Colorado LCA. So okay. yeah, we, we really are taking all the full measures to build our, our entity legally so that so that we're building a project that can last not just one or two years, but five, 10 years down the road, we're in a good position for our, all of our uh, our DAO members. We would have liked to have done our pre-sale and allow list earlier, but and and the long the big reason why we haven't done it is just because. Uh, legal takes time and there's bottlenecks. It's not even a matter of cost. It's a matter of time that things, processes need to be passed. Um, and that's why we're taking a little longer to launch and actually doing it the right way, which we think will pay off in the long term. Can you talk a bit about, I guess, the current use cases that pervade in metaverse land? And if you think that, I guess, what is the most, I guess, prominent you know, use cases in for metaverse land? Because you talked about like, if nothing happens on the land, then it's kind of useless, um, which sort of implies that there, you know, that that there can be improvements made that will make the, the land sort of useful in a sense. I mean, I'll start off with some of the ones currently generating a lot of revenue. The big one on my mind would be Decentral Games, uh, Ice Poker. What they've done is they they, I believe they started off by building sort of casino structures within Decentraland, and now they're moving to sort of fully poker, I believe, from what I've seen. So sort of they work with like 
you can go on, you can buy a wearable. So you buy the NFT, then you're able to go and play poker with your friends and earn and earn passive revenue from that. Uh, you can also, sorry, not passive. You can rent it out and earn passive revenue, or you can wear it yourself and actively play. But that's using the land. So what they're really seeing is they need the land to build the place where you play. And as such, the land becomes the infrastructure. So the utility behind the land in that scenario is the infrastructure. Other things that you see is uh, a big example is a lot of event spaces, a lot of galleries you see. There's a lot of in-world games. So imagine like you have kind of like like TG is where you have you have a piece of land, you build something on top of it, and then you create a game inside. And then users can be rewarded for that game or not. But I think on a, from a broader perspective, it's also like how is like the metaverse is the first iteration of the next version of the internet, in my opinion. So this is the first iteration of how do how are humans and people going to communicate and work together and collaborate? But in 20 years, because for example, we're working with some communities to bring their whole community into places like Decentraland or other other metaverse realms just because it's a place to, to play, to connect. Like it's, we can hold events. We can do a good example as well. This is the Decentraland Fashion Week. Just to bring that up is, is happening on the 24th of March. So by the time this is out, it might've already happened, but this is a huge event where large players are coming in and they're a investing in the land, but also investing in building cool buildings where people can run around that there's going to be music events. There's going to be, big stages where a lot of communities bring in their members and they can then run around and talk and, and interact with the thing. But as well, there's going to be culture coming in. So a lot of the utility built on top of this is culture. And it's it's an expression expression of human culture and how we interact together. And I think that's a lot of utility there already. But also it's important to recognize it is in the, we're in the first iteration of this. So don't get discouraged by sometimes a perceived lack of utility because I think just being able to bring the community there and have events like this is already for me a, a big a big part of the utility and then future ways down the line I think the utility is going to be in things like uh, I think every company is going to have a HQ at least every serious company I think every every company is going to be looking at how do I get my employees off of slack and discord and into some kind of metaverse realm where the future of work is more interactive, more user-friendly, more fun, and you're not getting a thousand pings a day that are stressing you out, but actually having positive experiences online. I think there's a reason, you know, Facebook changed from their name into meta is because people like social media is not going to be the same once people, once a user experience that gets so much better social media won't be the same. So when you ask about utility on the land, the utility is the space to interact in general. It's a space to to talk to people, to play with people, to, to do whatever. Early case scenarios, a lot of the, the virtual land has been snapped up by basically, you know, the equivalent of developers. So private capital that's mostly interested in maximizing a return on whether it's rental yield or, or holding land as an asset, right? As a, as a revenue generating asset. Are there lessons there that we can take in terms of how to, you know, create a community that, that has room for a more equitable and, and distributed sense of community? 
is, is gentrification going to be taken from the real world into the metaverse and where there's not really any point to it, but it's just a bunch of capital working to, to make more capital. I think what, that's what I kind of heard. You know, you have some major cities where you have $10 million houses sitting empty, but it's because of the finances of the way it works. So if from that perspective, I mean, it's a free, the fact that it's a free and decentralized market means that this is probably like, it's going to be subject to it like any other market. And in any game, if you, if you, even if you look at real life as a game, like there's winners and losers, which means that there's always going to be some people that are bigger players than others. Uh, if we made, even with decentralization in the metaverse and in digital worlds, there's always going to be winners and losers and, and, and reasons for it. But I don't think that it's going to mimic what we're seeing now with a mass sort of exodus from cities. Uh, you know, it's, I can't speak of where you're from, but from where I'm from, um, it's, it's very clear that a, people are being outpriced in the cities. They're then moving, and then the cities are becoming sort of, some of them a bit empty in places and just filled with office buildings or, or things like this. I personally don't think it's going to mimic that simply because there's so many crazy people in this space, crazy smart people too. And at some point, we're, if something goes that bad, like we're just going to build a new digital world. Like there's not, and that's the thing. There's not a scarcity of land. There's a scarcity of, of, of content and creation and, and good utility. So if, if there is a world where it sucks, well, we're just going to stop going and go to the next one. I guess my question has to do with the, the, the user experience, I guess, of that, of that city. So somewhere like New York or London or wherever, um, there's always going to be a certain mix, right, in the city. So even if, People are priced out. Even in the more expensive prime areas, there's going to be pockets of, you know, for, you know, for, for example, like there, there's always going to be like the rent controlled uh, housing projects. And of course, that's by design where you, you know, incentivize or you create a situation where some of this less profitable activity is subsidized, whether it's from the state or whatever. Whereas perhaps in the metaverse, we're going to see like more ghettos in the sense that there's going to be the metaverse says that are mostly wealthy people. And then for all of us who can't afford that, we're going to just build something else. But then it's going to be a, a different. If I could address that, I think the difference is that when like what we're really like, if you look at things like social media, like what you're really paying for, social media is free for some crazy reason. And what people don't realize is you're paying your attention. So when you, when you talk about how there's going to be a few people owning a lot of something, if it is the case that everyone else gets tired of it and is like, screw that and move somewhere else, well, then what you would see is actually that, and this is purely, I'm not saying this will happen, but purely theoretical. But what I believe you would see is that as everyone else moved somewhere else, that would create a new opportunity and then the people that actually first moved would be the early adopters and they would benefit from the huge upside of being early to something because their attention, everyone's attention would suddenly be somewhere else. And then suddenly the value of that initial land, well, and that goes back to the utility and the, the culture around it. Well, it's not worth anything. With, if nobody uses it or nobody cares about it, it's, it's, you can't literally grow something on, on digital land just like you can grow something on real land. But what you can do is, and that's important to understand, like if people get tired of it to that extent and move somewhere else, then yeah, new things will grow. 
And that's just like the people in crypto right now, like the people that started it. And the reason it's so, you know, the things are so weird as well. Is like, there's people that felt really, if you look at the early adopters of crypto, there's people that felt really marginalized by potentially their security, their privacy. They felt that there were things at stake with the current financial system that wasn't working. And there's a lot of people that weren't, there's a lot of people coming in that are, had a lot of money to start with to put in, but there's also a lot of people that felt they were in a position where the current financial system wasn't serving them. And so they moved to that, created something new, and it was for the people, it was by the people for the people, and it actually helped them. And then now you're seeing these people being some of them are billionaires because they created protocols that actually suited a lot of helped a lot of people. So like to answer like to really address that, I think yes, there's a possibility that there's going to be a few people that own this and it's not really going to be decentralized and it causes a bad user experience, but like a bad user experience is short term because if it's a bad user experience, users are not going to stay and they're going to move somewhere else. I think a lot of this is just the use of the word land as a marketing tool has, because when people hear the word land, they, they bring with them a lot of the baggage, I guess, or the or the existing mental frameworks um, associated with physical land? It's, it's less physical, obviously, right? I think um, there, there, was a, there was a similar case being made for things like wallet as a very unhelpful metaphor for yeah. people, people's holdings of NFTs, for example. But it is a physical metaphor that is somewhat applicable. I would say like a more accurate description would probably be like a, an SDK from software engineering, I think would be a more accurate description of what is actually sort of quote unquote digital land actually is because essentially it's um the digital land originators like you know, decentraland or, or sandbox or um any of these guys are, are more sort of creating a platform with an sdk and essentially the purchasers of the land like pentiadel or whoever it might be are essentially using that sdk to develop on top and that would be like a software engineering metaphor that i think it would be more accurate as to as to what is going on now I was wondering, like, what do you see as the, I guess, the additional utility? Because, for example, if we just take, like, say, gambling, right, which is probably the currently the greatest use case in the metaverse, right? If you look at any of those metaverse projects, sort of casinos or sort of gambling establishments are by far the most trafficked establishments in any of those sort of metaverse virtual worlds. And, and of course, you can you can gamble in a variety of different ways. You can gamble online, uh, on, a, on a website, et cetera. So what do you think is the additional, I guess, utility or sort of use case that that putting something in that kind of metaverse world brings that sort of other form factors or other sort of modes of interaction cannot bring? I think that uh, one of the biggest use cases that was not really touched on was... Uh like social networking and I guess just social life in general. We've seen a bunch of different social events being occurring in the metaverse. And the only thing that's going to get amplified to a tremendous degree. During the pandemic, there was a ton of, I guess, virtual uh, events, concerts, and other kinds of virtual events that were hosted in metaverse-like spaces. Um, and we think that's going to continue down that trend and see people really forming these deep relationships in a, in a really unique way within the metaverse. Similarly to how we saw the growth of that in the early stages of Web2. Do you think this would actually like go beyond, I guess, a core, I guess, small 
niche that I'm, I'm I guess I'm, I'm looking at like, you know, probably the earliest metaverse style project, um, which would be kind of second life, which kind of started almost, I guess, 20 years ago. And they kind of came onto the scene, huge growth. And then for some reason or another, they kind of just stopped growing and they will, they always kind of remain a very, very small niche of sort of core and hardcore people who like that, but it never kind of crossed the chasm. Like, I think that there are a lot of things that I do for, to answer your question quickly in short, I, I do think we'll cross that chasm. And I think that it's from a couple different trends that will help, help that, that process. The first being the fact that every year humans are spending more and more time in front of their computer screens and online than ever before. And so the idea of having a social life somewhere where you spend more time than, than you do not, I think makes complete sense. If I spend 16 hours or 12 hours for my computer and four hours outside of my computer, I think it's only natural that people are going to continue to form more relationships via that way. And especially as we've seen remote working kind of grow, we're seeing uh, reverse urbanization and uh, people forming a lot of relationships virtually. Another thing that I think that Second Life didn't have the power of that we've seen games like Sandbox really leverage is the power of, I guess, influencers and uh, I guess people that are celebrities are kind of starting to adopt these platforms and bring the masses onto them. We know that Snoop Dogg had a, tr a tremendous event in Sandbox pretty recently, and he's been doing it occasionally as well. Uh, I don't think that I ever saw anything like that occurring in in Second Life, and I think that it's only amplified by the power of uh, social media currently and how interconnected the world is comparatively to 20 years ago. How did you guys, I guess, meet to do this? Like, what was the, what's the I guess the origin story of the coming together of the of the other founders? Like, do you guys know each other in real life? Just yeah. So uh, our whole team is friends in real life, as you can probably tell, though. Uh, Punk is from Europe while I'm from the States, along with the rest of our team. So our team is all guys that were working uh, in Web 2 and then kind of made the transition to Web 3 over the past couple of years. And we've always just kind of been shooting ideas to one another, just about our thoughts on the space. And then at one, one point, we were just having a conversation about how crazy the metaverse has exploded this, pa this past year. Well, it was, I guess that was in... September, October of last year. And we were talking about how the potential of the metaverse, but also the, I guess, the main barrier to entry that we saw initially, which was just the, the price of the floor price for, I guess, meta, uh, plots within Decentraland and Sandbox. And that kind of conversation, I guess, grew into the point where we saw that there might be a need for, for all to have access to the metaverse if we really want to see the metaverse grow to the full potential it is. If with that point, like, if there was going to be uh, a metaverse that succeeded, it can't just be only uh, consisting of landholders that had, uh, I guess, 15, 20,000 US dollars to spend on a plot of land at this point. And we thought that that land was going to grow in value anyway. So we kind of, that kind of just slowly evolved into what eventually became Pangea. And the project and the ideas behind, behind Pangea have really kind of evolved through this process and we've, we've, uh, cause we started as just an investment down and we're really growing into a creator's guild as well. And we think that we're going to be constantly growing with the space. Have you guys like raised like outside funding or is your sale going to be the, the sole funding or how, how is the, the structure, I guess the financial structure of it, of the DAO? 
So because of the ethos behind the project, focusing on helping the average retail investor, we have actually declined to take any institutional money prior to public sale. And we are going to let, we want to put all the public institutional money in the same position as any of our regular retail investors where they have to, they all can buy at the same time. Uh, because of this, we're actually launching our, our, our pre-sale allow list um, just about a week before our public sale. And that the entire the entirety of the nest of the use of that pre-sale is to kind of bootstrap liquidity for that token launch. So we're having a small limited pre-sale where our early supporters and partners are, and supporters of our partners are able to get an early access uh, price for the token. And that's really the only amount of early investment we'll take. And that's solely to bootstrap liquidity for our token launch. And other advisors listed on your uh, on your team page, are they also investors or are they just purely advisors and, and not investors? No. So as we said, we haven't taken any investment from others. Uh, everything that we've that has been done so far has either been done through bootstrapping and like us just grinding to the core, finding the right partners that work with us. And then of course the, the core team has put in a small amount of funds, you know, for, for legal things, website, you know, the, things you can't really outsource. But um, we haven't taken a dollar of investment uh, and, and we're proud about that as well. Awesome. Well, Hank, uh, Albert, welcome. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Um, it was uh, great having you here and uh, having a chat. Yeah, no, thank you so much. We really appreciate you bringing us up, uh, giving us the floor to speak. And uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, it was our pleasure for sure. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Floor is Rising. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and follow. And give us a review on your favorite podcast app. Remember to also follow us on Twitter at Floor is Rising. You can reach out to us or send us a question. Just send us a DM at Floor is Rising. <laughs>